We're going to dive in a new series today on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'm excited about it because it, it talks about the life of Jesus, uh, the miracles, the good works He did, the righteous life. And I'm a believer that if we look at that long enough and understand what He did, to whom He did it to, how He did it, why He did it, uh, that we'll it'll start to sink into our beings and the Gospel actually will have a, a new, deeper meaning and maybe, maybe set you free, maybe transform your life as we look at the Gospel. So we're going to go to Mark. We're just going to today probably deal with chapter 1, maybe a few verses in chapter 2. And I'm calling this the righteous life of Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to look at. We know a lot about his death on the cross. But, but the greater miracle is the perfect life he lived. Everything he did was perfect. It was the, the will of the Father. He never did his own will one time. He never sinned one time. He never cross the line one time. So I just want us to look at this. I pray it'd be a blessing to you. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. We open our Bibles and our hearts to the Gospel of Mark today. And Lord, I just pray that you would cause the life of Jesus to become so much more real to us, so much more alive to us, that we could feel the fire and the very essence of the heart of the Gospel, Lord, as we dive into this and look at your life, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you. We need you. We need you. We, I can't preach under the anointing without you, and, and no one will get a revelation without you, Lord God. We need you to bring forth revelation. We need you to open our eyes that we can see. We need you, Holy Spirit. Come, rend the heavens. Come, pour yourself out on your people, Lord God this day that you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to the first chapter of Mark. And Mark comes right out with this first verse in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. First, uh, who, who was John Mark? That was Barnabas's cousin. And remember when Peter got out of jail, the angel rescued him out of jail, and he went to a lady's house named Mary? Well, that was, Mary was his mom. So John Mark was raised in one of the early families of the early Christian church there, probably a prominent family, probably they had a large house. Uh, apparently there were a lot of people in there that night that Peter was uh, rescued from prison, and I remember him knocking on the door, and the girl saw him, and she went back telling everybody, Peter there, instead of letting him in, she was so excited about Peter being there. And, uh, but John Mark, that's where he was raised. So when Barnabas got to know Paul and they started their first missionary journey, John Mark went with them. And somewhere along the way, I don't know if he got scared, if he got tired, he got to missing his girlfriend, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but he went back. And uh, that later became a point of contention because on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. And Paul said no. And the, the contention was so great, Barnabas and Paul split up. So Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark. And uh, some people say, well, that was the end, end of the deal with Mark. No way. Mark became great friends with Peter. And really the gospel of Mark is Peter's eyewitness account. And Mark wrote it down for him. You could almost say this is the gospel of Peter. I could spend the whole 45 minutes today proving that to you. I'll just point out a couple things. You see Peter's weakness and his humanity and his mistakes all in this. 
You don't, you don't see Peter talking about the good, the good part of Peter. This, this is Peter's eyewitness account. Now, Peter did write a couple of his own books, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. But for some reason, he used Mark. God used Mark. God's the author of the gospel anyway. But uh, he used this guy, Mark. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. You say, yeah, he was. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> no. Uh, Matthew and John were two of the twelve, but Luke was a physician and Paul's tra traveling companion, and Mark was not one of the, one of the twelve. But, but he's, he's made a great mark in history here. Uh, his name John is a Jewish name. His name Mark is a Latin or Roman name. So the family, the, you know, Romans ruling the whole area, so the family obviously had some Roman connections, named their boy John Mark. It's a book of action. It's written in the present tense. This word immediately is used 41 times in the Gospel of Mark. He, immediately, immediately, present tense. It moves fast. And uh, there's very few of Jesus' teachings in Mark. You don't have a Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew and Luke. You, you have some short snippets all along the way. But most of Mark is about his behavior, his life, his action. That's why I want to focus on it. I really feel like if we can understand the righteous life of Jesus Christ, we'll appreciate the death, burial, and resurrection more. We'll understand how, how was Jesus able to impute righteousness onto you? I mean, if you're enjoying that today, I enjoy it. I enjoy being in Christ. I enjoy being a saint. God looks at me not as a sinner, as a saint. God looks at me as holy and righteous. Well, how did he do that? He did that because of this righteous life he lived, 33 and a half years. He, at the end of that, because he never sinned, he was actually able to impute that onto us. So we owe everything to him. So let's just get to know it under, a little better. There's a lot of miracles in Mark. Mark has more miracles recorded than any of the other three Gospels. Not, not as much of the teachings, but a lot of miracles. And the way he starts, there's no Christmas story, there's no genealogies, no shepherds or wise men. It's just, bam, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, so he doesn't beat around the bush. He just comes right out and says, Jesus, this man from Nazareth, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. He's the Son of God. He's, he's the second person of the Trinity. Yet he walked on this life, on this earth. Uh, I got a lot of my thoughts from Dr. Keller, a lot of my thoughts from C.S. Lewis, and a whole bunch of my thoughts from the Holy Spirit. So I just pray that the Lord will open your eyes through this and you'll see Jesus in a greater way, our Messiah and our King. Right after this opening verse, then... The story goes to John the Baptist. At, his, at Mark 1, 2 through 8, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So here's a prophecy from hundreds of years ago, and the prophecy is pointing to John the Baptist. Because what John the Baptist did was prepare the way for the Messiah. Now look, look, this is amazing. John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea 
and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And why is that such a miracle? Well, think about it. How many people are going out to see him? Thousands, tens of thousands. What do they find when they get there? John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. Bizarre, I would say. And he preached, saying, After me cometh he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or John saying, I'm baptizing you in water, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you in God. <laughs> in God. Baptize you in God. The miracle here is that all these folks from Jerusalem, the city, and then the Judea there, the surrounding area, were going out by the droves, giant crowds, and John was baptizing them. But what else were they doing? The miracle here is they were standing there confessing sins. You know, all of us want revival to come to Return Church. I'll tell you when it will come. When the altar's full of people confessing sins. You say, oh, we don't have any more sins. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> we all have sin. We got it flipped upside down. We treat church in a way where we wear our mask. We don't want anybody to know our sins. It needs to be, this ought to be the different kind of place. Yep, the opposite of that. This is the place where sinners come and receive forgiveness. So, so you had thousands of people confessing their sins and John baptizing them and teaching them how to repent. There's more on this in the other Gospels. He, he's, he's teaching them how to repent, what repentance means. They're confessing their sins. He's baptizing them. And he's saying all of this to get your hearts ready because Messiah is about to show up. The Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is about to come on the scene. And if you can get, in other words, there is no salvation without repentance of sin. If you feel far away from God, what's separating you is sin. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, rend your heart, and you make your heart prepared for the receiving of the Messiah. So this is what John was doing. He's saying, you know, I'm doing, this is great. People are feeling moved. People are feeling cleansed. People are feeling drawn near to God. But John's saying, this is nothing. The guy coming after me is going to baptize you in God, in the Holy Spirit, in the third person of the Godhead. He's going to baptize you in fire. Your, your whole being's going to change. So right after this, and Jesus shows up to get baptized. Now, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Bat hmm? Matthew 3. To go to 3. For we must carry out all that God requires. That's NLT. ESV says Jesus. This is when John and Jesus were arguing. John said, no, no, no. You got to baptize me. I can't baptize you. And John didn't understand. Jesus, look up top. Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. NLT, for we must carry out all that God requires. What does that mean? I really believe Jesus was baptized here at the beginning of his ministry to identify with sinners by beginning the process of taking on the sins of the people. 
that just think that that water had just had thousands of people baptized in it. Those sins in the water. So the righteous Son of God comes and says, John, oh, you got to baptize me. I'm going to go down in the water to pick up their sins. He didn't go down because he was a sinner. He didn't need to be cleansed. He was the righteous one. But God the Father commanded him to do it. So it was part of the righteous will. Jesus had to do a lot of bizarre things that God wanted him to do. And you say, why? Well, of course, it's God, God's will. But why? Because I really believe his whole ministry was this becoming sin, taking on the sin of mankind. The whole next three years, three and a half years, it was all about him, him what? Serving, not being served. Washing feet, not having them wash his feet. You know, being baptized, not, not him baptizing John. It was all upside. It was the Son of God coming to the earth to take on the sins of mankind. Why? That you and I might be saved. That you and I might be set free. That you and I might have our sins forgiven and cleansed and washed away. It's beautiful. It's powerful. I'm going to squeeze my favorite verse in right here. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God had, Jesus had to be baptized. Why? For you and me. <laughs> That we might become the right. He had to fulfill all righteousness that he might be able to impute righteousness onto us. He couldn't put it on you. He couldn't cover you in it had he not already lived it and fulfilled it. He did everything the Father wanted him to do. So here's his baptism, Mark 1, 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately, <laughs> this word is used all through Mark. It almost enter entertains me just to think about it. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now this is a prophecy back in Isaiah, fulfillment. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Do you understand it had been 400 years since anyone on the earth had seen the presence of God? So this was, was an amazing moment in the history of mankind. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, walking down into these Jordan River waters to be baptized, to, to, to begin the process of taking on our sins. And, and as soon as He came out of the water, the heavens were rent. They were ripped. That's the same word that you see when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, and the curtain was torn. Same word, torn. Here, here the heavens were rended, torn, and the Spirit of God came out. Now, the Spirit of God wasn't a dove. It didn't say that. It said, like a dove. Like a dove, what he's trying to say, descended on him real gently. It wasn't just some little bird descended on his shoulder. This was the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit came and descended upon the Messiah. So you see the Son. You see the Spirit. And now you hear the Father. He, he, he covers the whole thing in his voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Trinity. You see the Trinity here. What's the Trinity about? Go back to the creation in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit 
of the Lord, the Spirit of God. In ESV it says, hovered like a dove, hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Trinity created everything. And now at this baptism point at at the River Jordan, you're going to see the Trinity is all about the redemption of mankind. He created mankind, now He's going to redeem mankind. It's the Trinity's involved. And the Trinity is so important that we understand God's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't see that right, it will skew or mess up the way you see God. And if you don't see God right, you can't have this wonderful intimate relationship with him. You've got to understand how he works, who he is. There's a trinity here. If God were only one, and he was going to create everything, you might get to thinking, well, he needed to create us because he was lonely. And he was... Uh... Y'all think that... No. So, so you might think if God is one, he's sitting up here on his throne and he's on a big ego trip and he, he, he commands us to come to church and worship him. I've had kids ask me that before. What is God on some kind of ego trip? We got to worship him all the time. If God was just one and he created you because he was lonely, then maybe that would work that he's on an ego trip and he makes you worship him. And he's also got a big stick in his hand, an ugly stick. And when you do wrong, he's going to beat you up. I want you to forget this kind of thinking. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest authors of all time, said this. God is not a static thing, but dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost a dance. I've, I've said this to you before, maybe a year ago, and I was studying this week. The Lord said, go back over this. This is too good. Everybody in the church needs to get this. You see, because God's not one. God's three. Three equal persons of the Godhead. The Father's not the highest ranking God, and the Son the second highest ranking, and the Holy Spirit third. Nay, nay, nay. Three equal persons. The Father, the Word, or the, the, the Son and the Word, that's one, same thing. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And they, the three of them created all things. The three of them were involved in redeeming all things. Jesus did his role, but the Father and the Holy Spirit did their role. See, God is not self-centered. He's not on an ego trip. He's not on a throne demanding we all worship him. Each person of the Trinity glorifies each other. I've done this before. I need three young people. In this church, anything south of 58 young, all right? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to be 58 in about a week. Man, can you believe that? I'm glad I lived that long. I am. I'm, there we go. I got two. Give me a man. Yeah, come. Perfect. Scotty, come. come all three of y'all. So you, y'all can do it right up here. One of y'all, you're going to say, this is sacrilegious, letting a person represent God. It's really not. God understands our... Elizabeth, you'll be the father, and you can be the son. And you can be the Holy Spirit, all right? It really won't matter. Now, most people's view of God is, is Liz, you stand right by the speaker, and then the Son right behind him, and the Spirit behind that. In other words, Father's big God, Son second in command, Holy Spirit third in command. It just doesn't even work that way. 
This, this static, self-centered God where I was sitting in the chair, that's just such a wrong image. Because what God does is they glorify each other. So right now she's in the middle. What I want y'all to do is keep trying to go to the middle and go around each other. In a, in a, no, Patricia, you got to move too. There we go. <laughs> it's a dance. It'll take them a while to get it figured out. But see, they glorify each other. They commune with each other. They defer to each other. They exalt each other. They love each other. There is no self-centeredness in the Godhead. That's it. It's a dance. All right. Hold up just a second so you don't get dizzy. You did great, by the way. Y'all figured that out in a matter of seconds. That was fantastic. It was. See, God did not create us so we would love Him. He wasn't this self-centered one God. The Trinity was around way before creation. And when he got to thinking about creating us, they were dancing. So this is what C.S. Lewis called it, a dance. There's movement in the Trinity. He, he, he's not this God, oh, I'm lonely, I need somebody. No, he created us so he could love us. Not even so we would love him. He created us so he could pour his nature out on all creation, that, that, that His name would be magnified, that He could show us love. And then, oh, I just love this whole thing. about The Trinity is too complicated to, to put it in a snapshot in a little demonstration in church. But what I'm trying to do is open your mind so when you're praying, you'll understand more of your relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three are equal and all three are important in your life. Each person of the Trinity glorifies each other. Look what Jesus said in John 17. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, this is toward the end of his ministry. He's saying, Father, I've done all you've asked me to do, and that's brought you glory. I have glorified you because I've obeyed you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. See, Jesus experienced the glory of the Father before the creation of the world. You say, well, now, he wasn't born until 2,000 years ago in a manger. That's the Son of Man. Which one of y'all is playing Jesus? Patricia, all right. <laughs> that means the Christ, the Christ, the Word of God, was always a part of the Trinity, and it was the Christ, the Word of God, that left the Godhead to come to the earth 2,000 years ago that He might redeem mankind, that He might rescue mankind. And now what He's done, y'all dance again. Now that He's redeemed us, He's inviting us into the dance. We're sinners. He saves us. He washes us in His blood. Because what He's saying is come dance. Come be a part of the dance. And, and now we can be a part. We can be one. I'm not, a, I'm a, I'm not in step, am I? <laughs> it take me a while, Scotty. All right? You're God. I'm not. I'm just a sinner. All right? Look at, all right. <laughs> he wants you to be a part of the dance. Watch this. But here's our problem. We, y'all can stop dancing. Thank you. I, me, my, mine. I want everybody to revolve around me, me. You'll never be a part of the dance as long as you view life from a self-centered position. And everybody that's self-centered, let me tell you right now, you're not happy. 
you're miserable. And the more self-centered you become, the more you make everybody in your life miserable. Oh, you might do things for God, but it's so you'll try to feel better about yourself. I know I can't tell you how many Christians I know that are sitting in this chair when God's called them to be a part of the dance. See, man was born, we were born self-centered. You didn't just get this way, you were born this way. Wanting everyone and everything to revolve around me. Lots of self-centered people engage in ministry. Are you serious, Brother Bill? Absolutely. But they, they do it to try to feel better about themselves. They're still on the center because they're still wanting everyone to bow to them and, and they want to control everybody and everybody do it their way. I know all about this seat. I sat on this seat a long time in my life. This is not where happiness is. This is not where joy is. This is not where peace can be found. Since the world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. Can y'all see that? The rela- see, they had such love for one another. Not one of them ever got their feelings hurt because the other one didn't love them. They had perfect love. Relationships, perfect. Revolving around each other, exalting one another, magnifying one another, communing with one another, deferring to one another, never arguing with one another, never putting the other down, never lifting themselves up. They never once sat in the chair of the center and say, revolve around me. No, God's not that way. God loves. He is perfect love. So when he created mankind, see, this is the Garden of Eden. Man was invited to the dance. Adam and Eve were invited to the dance. But Satan got in the way. And Satan tempted them and caused them to come over here and be self-centered. And that's where mankind got into trouble. God is about, life is about loving relationships. What's church about? Loving relationships. What our relationship with God's about? It, it's a love relationship. You fall in love with Him, and then guess what you'll do? You'll have love in your heart for each other. Church is all about loving relationships. Life is all about loving relationships. But the only way to do this is God's got to get all the glory. When you're in this chair of self-centeredness, you want glory. You want recognition. You want credit. You want to be admired. You want to be loved. This should be stepping on somebody in this church. It's stepping on me as I preach it. Dancing in the battle. Right after the baptism. You know, I think I can do without y'all now. That was awesome, though. Thank y'all so much. We give them a big hand clap. Right after the baptism, the Spirit of the Lord moved Jesus to the wilderness. This one, the devil that put him in the wilderness. Look what it said. The Spirit, see that? Mark 1, 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. You ever been to the wilderness? You think the devil's one put you out there? Think again. The Spirit of the Lord drives you out there. Right after this tremendous moment in history, where the heavens were rending, the Spirit came down, and the Father spake, and we saw the Trinity there in the Jordan River. Then the Spirit of the Lord drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Other account, gospel accounts give you more of this story. Mark just gives you a little snippet of it. What you've got to understand, the wilderness is a battleground. 
That is your battleground. Jesus was tempted and tested for 40 days. We, we read the story of Satan testing him those three points. Right? Three points. Y'all remember that? And he fought it off with the Word of God every time. It is get behind me. It is written. It is written. It is written. What about the other 39 days of temptation and testing that was not recorded? The Bible says there's wild animals out there. Obviously he had encounters with wild animals. And he had angels out there ministering to him. We, we saw the angel in the Garden of Gethsemane minister to him. Were you aware he had to have angels? He created these angels. But yet he needed them to minister to him. Why? Because he had limited himself in a human body. He had the Spirit on him without measure, the fullness of the Holy Spirit without measure on him, but he was limited in a man's body, and therefore he had to face temptation like you and I face temptation. That's why he's so awesome that he could live a perfectly righteous life, because he was tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin, and he made it through these 40 days. Don't be surprised if... The Spirit doesn't lead you into wilderness and test you, test your metal, test your faith, test you with what you got. He said, Brother Hudson, I can't take any more testing. <laughs> I, know, I know it's hard, but he won't put on you more than what you can handle. And he's going to be righteous, Lord. This is what life's about. What's Satan trying to get him to do in the wilderness? Leave the dance and go over here and sit in the self-centered seat. If Jesus would have just done that, he could have saved himself 40 days of pain. But he didn't do that one time. He took it all. He took everything the Father was putting on him, and he, he passed that with flying colors, came out of there. He had never sinned. All believers experience spiritual warfare. Satan is very real, and he's after you. He wants to see you leave the dance and step back into the center of your life. Over here, we're dancing with the Father. He's getting all the glory. Everything we do is for His glory. Everything we do is for His pleasure. We're just caught up in the very essence of the gospel here with the love of God in the middle of the Trinity. And Satan's going to constantly come at you and try to talk you into leaving that kind of relationship with God and become self-centered in your life. You say, oh, Brother Hudson, I've been saved 40 years. You can still leave the dance and sit on that chair anytime you want to, honey. And when you sit down there and establish your throne, and you're the God of your own life, just, I'll, it, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be in for a world of hurt. You know, there'll be disappointment, there'll be sadness, there'll be misery. That's where people start drugging and drinking and running around. It's miserable trying to play God. Some of y'all have had more experience that than I have, but I've tried to play God, and uh, I don't want to go back there. There's nothing... There's no joy in the seed of self-centeredness. All right, I've got to move along. The temptation, man was invited to the dance in the Garden of Eden. We said this. Satan came right into the garden. The snakes slivered right in there. Of course, he had legs then. I hate snakes. Man, I just think about them. I hate them. They give me the... I wish I could just wear my guns with me on me all the time just so I could shoot every snake I see. I wish I could shoot spiritual snakes. I could just shoot them with a gun. That'd be easier. But the, this, the devil's trying to, he's trying to, he's, the Bible says he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. Steal your faith, kill your joy, destroy your relationship with God. And he's real and he's going to be there again. You're going to face him again. And you need to learn to wear the spiritual armor. I'm not trying to put fear on you because through the 
power of Jesus' name and through the power of the blood of Jesus, you can defeat every devil out of hell. You've got the authority in his name. But you will be tested. So just don't get on the throne of your heart. Get, get off the throne. Don't, don't expect others to revolve around you. Get in the middle of the dance and just start giving Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father all the glory. All right, then we get to a powerful voice here in the middle of chapter 1, verse 14, 15. Now, after John was arrested, John had a short ministry, didn't he? I told you how powerful a ministry was. And look what, see, Mark doesn't, he just cuts right to the main points. John was arrested. You know what I believed? And Jesus said, nobody, no prophet was greater than John. So I'm not down on John, but I really believe John, he said, I got to decrease in order for him to increase. No, his ministry was actually over. His ministry was to prepare the way of Jesus. So when Jesus came along and a couple of John's disciples followed Jesus, John should have right there put his ministry down and started following Jesus. But he didn't. He stayed out there doing his own thing. He wasn't ready to give his ministry up. I pray that the day God asks me to give the ministry up, I'll walk away from it. I never want to hang on to something that God's done with. So he got arrested. That shut him up. God has a way of shutting you up, you know. <laughs> and uh, Mark just points this out because this is when Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first thing he's saying here, this is the kingdom of God's here. This is the first time we see him talking about the kingdom of God. And he's going to talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in other gospels. Here, the kingdom of God. He's going to talk about it repeatedly. Because really and truly, why did he save you? He saved you to get you off the center of your life. And that you might come over here and make Jesus Christ the king. The king of your life, the boss of your life, the head of your life, the manager of your life, the governor of your life. He's your king. So many Christians want him as savior. So many Christians want to die and go to heaven. But very few are willing to bow down at his feet and say, command me, Jesus. You're my king. That's what the kingdom of God is. He has the authority and you need to come under that authority. Now, you know how people think, man, if we just had the right king, everything would be all right. You say, we don't believe that here in America. We're a democracy. There's 50% of the people in this country believe that, man, if just Trump can stay in there four more years, everything's going to be fine. And there's 50% in America believe that if we can get Trump out of there for the next four years, everything will be just fine. What are they saying? They're saying, if we can get the right king over us, everything will be all right. And look at all the stories and the fairy tales and Robin Hood and Camelot and Lord of the Rings and all these things have a theme that if the good king will just come back and rule over us, everything will be all right. See, Jesus is already that good king. He's already that good king. He's come. <clears throat> at the cross, he slayed the dragon. Then he's kissed his sleeping bride that she might be awakened now. Now he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And for every Christian that will really make him king, they can understand what it's like to walk with him. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Religion is following advice. The gospel is essentially 
news. He didn't say, I've, I've come to give you a lot of advice on how to live so you can make it to heaven. What if I spent the 45 minutes next week just giving you advice? Let's start with how you dress. This is how you dress at church. This is how you dress at school. You know, th- this is how you dress at work. You know, no, 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 no. That's not, no, no, no. We've got to do it this way. Well, then, then we're going to shift over into your hairdo. We'll talk about how kind of hair you need to wear. Then what you should eat and what you should not eat. What you should drink and what you should not drink. What you should watch or what you should not watch. Should you have a TV or is a computer good enough to hook you into the cesspool of the world? What, what if I just started talking about all these things of what you should do and should not do? How would you leave here feeling? We'd all be beat down. We'd all have our head down. Oh, I got to work harder. I got to try harder. And I thought I was doing better. I don't like this new preacher. You know, now look what he's... That's advice. And you can join any religion you want to and hear all the advice you want to hear about living your life. The gospel, the, the essence of the word means good news. This is good news. The gospel, instead of a preacher giving you advice, it would be like me printing a newspaper. And the headlines read, Son of God gave his life, died for your sins. Son of God lived the righteous life that he might impute that onto you. That Jesus, the Son of God, has come to this earth lived the perfect life, died in your place, has risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. I should have had it printed in a newspaper format so you could understand. The gospel's news. News. See, religion's advice of what you've got to do. The gospel is news of what Jesus has already done. It's what he did 2,000 years ago that's going to change me. It's what he's done. It's already done 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary, and that's going to change my life. The gospel is news. So he said, repent and believe the, the gospel. Now here's a quote by Keller. I usually don't do this. It's a long quote, but man, this is rich. He's one of my favorite, favorite teachers. Religion is advice on how you must live to earn your way to God. Your job is to follow that advice to the best of your ability. If you feel like you're following it faithfully and completely, you will believe you have a connection with God. Now think of this. Because of the what, how you're doing, you're following it so well. Now you have a connection with God because of your right living and right belief. And you will feel superior to people with wrong living and wrong belief. That's a slippery slope. Because as you start feeling superior to them, you will stay away from them, which makes it easier to exclude them and even hate them. Wow. See, we all have tendencies to lean into religion instead of the gospel. I don't care what church you've been a part of. People get to thinking they got this real cool connection with God because of right belief and right living. I'm, I'm living right and I'm believing right, so that makes me special, and I look down on somebody. If you look down on anybody, that's, that's the most evil thing can live in your heart. Hitler looked down on the Jewish race. He thought he was superior to the Jewish race. That's the most evil man I think ever lived. Do you realize that's in us? If you look down on any human being, any, any race, 
any economic status, any religion, any denomination, any whatever. I mean, we're so bad in America, Republicans actually look down on Democrats, and Democrats look down on Republicans. Rich folks look down on poor folks. Poor folks look down on rich folks. Different races look... Let me tell you, that's, all that is pride. All that comes from a self-centered seat. I want to love everybody in this world the way God loves them, and God's not going to look down on any of them. Amen. The gospel is not advice. It's good news. The news that you don't need to earn your way to God, Jesus has already done it for you. It's a gift we receive by grace, God's unmerited favor. All right, moving right along. I won't spend much time. I just want to show you this point. This is where Jesus starts calling his disciples. I mean, Mark just moves from story to story to story and uses this word immediately. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So Jesus just comes along. These guys don't know him from anyone, but he had such an authority, such a presence, that just with him saying, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, they dropped everything and left all for Jesus. And uh, this is kind of cool. One thing I gain, gain out of this is Jesus has to call you. <laughs> and he does. I mean, I, I know he's called me. He's chosen me. He's, he, why would he choose me? I have no idea, but he did. He chose me when he saved me. He chose me. You know, I, I love that. He's called me. And the gospel is actually about not following good advice. It's about following a king. <laughs> following the king of kings. He's going to ask you in life, one point in, in your spiritual walk, he'll say, come and follow me. No matter where you are, there's always a call. There's always a call to let go of where you are and draw closer to him. The king is calling his disciples. And then we start seeing how the story churns. He's starting to show how Jesus has authority and, and trying to explain what authority is. And they were, went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See the word authority? See the word author in it? See, he was the author. The scribes had read the Bible. Jesus wrote it. <laughs> There's a little difference there. The scribes would say, this rabbi's view is this, and this rabbi views it this way. Jesus never had to say that. He was the author of the Bible. When he started teaching the Bible, they never heard anything like it before because of the authority of it. One thing I, I gain is, is, you know, you read books trying to understand yourself. But man, when I read the Bible, it's like the book understands me. <laughs> it is so different. It, the, he has so much authority. When I immerse myself in the Bible, instead of me trying to understand it, I realize it's understanding me. And uh, that's a powerful thing. Do you... This authority, I want you to think about what authority is. Do you like it when people have authority over you? No, we don't. Wives, do you like it if your husband exercises authority over you? Let's say it that way. Husbands, do you like it when your wife's trying to be the boss? Huh? 
What about at work when you've had a good boss for years and all of a sudden they change bosses and now you get a boss that's a jerk? What do you like that, huh? At church, you could have your ministry, you've been doing that ministry for years, now all of a sudden they put somebody else in charge, and this guy's got authority over it. You don't like that. Admit it to me, I'm not, I'm going to keep preaching long, all right? You've got to help me. I'll... You don't like it, people having authority over you, do you? <laughs> but Jesus has this authority. And the only way you're ever going to be happy in life is just to come under his authority. Just to humble yourself and let him be the king. Uh, this next verse is about a, they were in the synagogue and a demon cried out. Let me tell you something. You, you want to find demons? I don't recommend it. But if you're one of these ghostbusters that's out just looking for demons, go to a religious place. You'll find demons. He, he found demons in the synagogues. Go to the religious place. That's where, because these people, the devil is controlling these people. And it's so much easier for him in this world because, you know, they don't know. They don't have a clue that they're bound. They think they're godly and right and right belief and right living and have a connection with God. And all they have is religion. They have no love. They have no power. They have no real life. You want to go to find demons, look in a religious place. So Jesus cast out the demon in the synagogue. Look at this. We're almost done. Immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John, now Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand. And she lift, he lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. I kind of like that. The cook's sick. <laughs> so Jesus is going to heal the cook first. You know, let's get her up and going here. So she, <laughs> I like that. And uh, the evening sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He had authority over the demons. He had authority over sickness. He had authority. He, Jesus had the goods. He had the authority to do whatever he wanted to do. <coughs> Excuse me. The whole town was outside his door. He went out, probably thousands of people out there, and he just went and healed and delivered and then the neat thing, the next morning, they're looking, the disciples are looking for him, and he's up praying. Early in the morning, it was still dark, he departed, went to a desolate place, and prayed. Now, why does Jesus have to pray if he's God? It goes back to the Trinity. It goes back to the relationship. Jesus never did one thing on his own. He, was held, he held himself accountable to the will of the Father. And he couldn't do anything without the power of the Spirit. It took the whole Trinity to make this work. Jesus spent buku of hours in his three and a half year ministry praying. He, if he needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray? I mean, Jesus went, and so the disciples go find him. They have to go find him in a desolate place. And Simon said, those that were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone's looking for you. Like, I could see the disciples kind of fussing at him. What are you doing way off over here in the wilderness? You got thousands of people looking for you, man. They want you to talk to them. They want you to heal them. And he said, let's go to the next town. I like that. He walked away from the crowd. We got this so backward in our life. In, in Christianity, where there's a crowd, that's where we want to be. Jesus walked away from the crowd. He said... Uh, let us go to the towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. 
And he went out through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Then a leper came to him. just want to bring this out. In the Old Testament, leprosies had to stay away. And they had to, they had to speak when someone came near them. Unclean, unclean, I'm unclean. Stay away from me. I'm unclean. Can you imagine what the rejection and the reproach and the shame and the guilt? And they had leprosy and not only that, they were social outcasts and they had to, when anyone got near them, unclean, unclean, so no one would get near them. And what did Jesus do? Leper came, Jesus went right up to him and just touched him. See, the new covenant is different than the old covenant. We're supposed to touch everybody. We're supposed to touch the sinners. Touch the... Oh, man, there's so much. This is so rich right here. Jesus touched the leopard and made him clean. That's what his whole ministry was about, making us dirty lepers clean. All right. I won't go there. I could finish. I would start at Mark 2 next week. Uh, are y'all enjoying this thing on Mark 2? Huh? All right. We'll, we'll deal with it next week. I want to wrap up and close with this one thought. Just concentrate with me right here for a minute. Back to this verse. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the king that has the authority to make everything wrong with the world right. Everything wrong with you right. See, once you can really trust that, he has the authority to fix everything that's wrong with us. That's what he came to do, is fix it. This uh, author, Tolkien, said in a children's book, there's a famous line that says, he came to make everything sad come untrue. <laughs> I really like that. Everything sad come untrue. Jesus came to fix it. He's got the authority. He's got authority over the devil, authority over all demonic spirits. He's got authority over all sickness. He created the worlds and hung the universe. I mean, he, he can create anything he wants to. He's got all power, all authority. And that's who your Savior is. And my, my prayer that through, as we study this gospel, that we'll make a shift from him just being our Savior to also being our King. And if he's our King, that means, Lord, command me, whatever you want me to do. And he's not going to give you advice. He's going to just say, come, follow me. And he'll, he'll, he'll live the life for you and through you even. Jesus Christ lives his life through us when we can't do it. So Jesus should be your center. I go back to the beginning, the center. If Jesus is your center and you're, you're the subject and he's the Lord, what he will do when you make him king is then he'll bring you over and invite you to the dance. If you make him your center, then he's going to say, I'm going to show you that life's really all about these love relationships. It really wasn't about your ministry or you being successful or you being rich or everyone loving you or you being handsome or beautiful. You know, now that you've made Jesus a center, you'll be invited to the dance. And here you'll see the very reason for life. The very essence of the gospels right here. It's all about unconditional love, selfless giving, selfless sharing, selfless love one to another. And then when you get that going, beloved, you, you can come into harmony with everybody in the church. Everybody in the church. They don't have to act a certain way for you to love them. You just start loving them, all right? They don't have to change for you to love them. Just you do your part. Let's stand to our feet. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for inviting us to the dance. Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross, being raised from the dead, sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me every day that I might join the dance. Holy Spirit, thank you for working with us, not giving up on us, Lord God, for we all have centered ourselves. We've all taken the seat of self-centeredness over and over in our lifetime. But Lord, we just pray we want to be delivered from that. We want to be delivered from that. We want to join the dance. Teach us how to love. Teach us how to glorify you, Lord, in all that we do. Every thought to God be the glory. Every word to God be the glory. Every action to God be the glory. Everything at return church to God be the glory. Lord, we want this to be a church where man never receives any acclaim or glory in any way. But Jesus Christ, you're the, the one Lord, true and exalted, above all, magnified. Lifted, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. As the angels in Revelation surround the throne with the 24 elders and the, and the four beasts, giving you all honor and praise and glory, magnifying you, exalting you. Lord Jesus, make that such a part of our life that we spend our waking moments thinking how to give you the glory. Lord, teach us the book of Mark. Teach us your life, Jesus. Help us understand your life, your righteous life, that our love for you might grow and that we might move and mature in Christ. It's in the precious holy name of the Lord I pray. Amen.